alas, and did my Savior bleed? In that song, he says, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Do you realize that it was David prophesying about the Lord Jesus Christ who called himself a worm and no man in Psalm 22? And our Lord Jesus takes that title to himself. The king of glory calling himself a worm. And so down through the history of the church, the greatest and godliest of men and women have seen themselves to be worms. This week I read the biography of Richard Baxter, a godly Presbyterian pastor in England in the 1600s. And he called himself a worm throughout his life until on his deathbed when Richard Baxter, who had written over 150 books, probably the Christian who has written more words than any Christian in the world, 10 million words. His books are still published today, a godly man, and at the end of his life, he did not call himself a worm anymore. Do you know what he called himself on his deathbed? A vile worm. May the Lord give us that kind of humility. And that is exactly what the text says today. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I had another introduction, but that was so perfectly fitted to this passage. Richard Baxter saw himself throughout life as a worm until his deathbed. When he thought, no, that's too good. That's too good. Better take the term vile worm. As Richard Baxter was dying, the man who wrote that song we just sang, Isaac Watts, was alive and living very near to Baxter. In fact, he probably had met Richard Baxter. His name was Isaac Watts. And he wrote that song and put in the song, Such a worm as I. When Isaac Watts died, another man had been born in London. His name was William Carey. William Carey sang Isaac Watts' songs and went to India as a missionary. He was there for 40 years and died in India, taking the gospel to India and translating the Bible into numerous languages there. There's a college today in India, named after William Carey. It's actually the college that he started that he did not name after himself because on his tombstone, what did he have written? A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. And those words came from Isaac Watts, which I just found out. Generation after generation of the best and godliest men the men who saw God and are now seeing God, the men that we would be wise to follow, saw themselves as great sinners in need of a great Savior. We have here before us the picture of Naaman. Why is he in this book? Look at the title of the book. What's the title? Kings. Naaman is not a king. And he's not even a king in Israel. 
He's from another country, the country of Syria. Why would he be in this book? He is in this book to picture what a perfect prophet, a good prophet will do. Elisha, the man of God, is given these chapters from chapter 3 up through chapter 9 to explain how Elisha served the Lord. Elisha's life has more chapters than Elijah's life, which fits with what we studied from Elijah a few weeks ago. Elijah was a godly prophet, and he has a number of chapters in the Bible, but Elisha has more. Elijah performed a number of miracles, some say eight. Elisha performed more, some say 16. The reason I say some say is it's not exactly clear what exactly is a miracle. Was it a miracle when when Elijah called down fire from heaven on the men who were coming out to arrest him? God did that. Elijah didn't do that. He just sat there and said, then fire will fall on you. So it could be that Elisha performed double the miracles of Elijah. And now we have a story where Elisha again performs a miracle. But is it really Elisha? Do you know the story? Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. Is it a miracle when you don't do anything? Did Elisha do it or did God do it? That's some of the difficulties in deciding how many miracles did each one do. Who did it? The last miracle that's recorded is Elisha's grave. Uh, A dead body is thrown into Elisha's grave and the man comes back to life. Did Elisha perform that miracle? He was in heaven. But the point is simply this. 2 Kings records at length Elisha's story. And each of the stories has an important message. The message of chapter 5 is just this. As Naaman, so too we have the choice to kill pride or be killed by it. That's the point of the whole sermon because that's the point of this story. Just like with Naaman, you and I have a choice to kill our pride or be killed by that pride. That's the choice that confronts us today to die in pride or to die to pride. Now, the story takes place under five headings. So if you're taking notes, you can follow them easily. If you're marking them in your Bible, you can follow them these five points. Number one, pride alive. That's verses one to seven. Pride alive or pride grows. Pride is alive. How does pride grow? That's verses one to seven. Verses eight, nine, and ten. Pride is threatened. Something is going to come to threaten and attack pride. Pride has an enemy. That's verses 8 
9 and 10. Verses 11 and 12. Pride resists. Pride will not go down easily. It's not going to give in to this. Verses 13 and 14. Pride dies. Verses 15 to 19. Pride gives way to faith. Pride gives way to faith. Those are the five sections that unpack this main point. And here's the point again so that you won't forget it. You have a choice and your choice is you can kill your pride or be killed by it. What will you do? Let's see the passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given deliverance to Syria. He was also a mighty warrior. Look at all the statements of this man. He's a great man. He's highly respected. He's the general of the army. His master loves him. And what's the fourth statement in verse 1? What's the fourth thing we see about this great man? Oh, before a leper. Just before a leper. Something about his own personal skill. He's a great warrior. He's very courageous. Not only is he a brilliant strategist, but he actually goes out in the battle. Today's generals, if they fight a battle... They sit in their offices and type on their computers and make their phone calls. But this man had a horse and rode his horse right into the battle so that everyone could see him and follow him. First in the attack and last in the retreat. He's a courageous man. You will find that men who are gifted and successful are commonly prideful. So much so that George Whitfield, the great Anglican preacher, said, God, deliver me from success if that's the only way to save me from pride. How wise we would be to pray the same thing. Better for me to be a garden boy and saved than to be the king of kings and lost eternally. And Naaman is proud, and we only have the hint right here. I say hint because 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22 says, not many, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24 or so says, not many wise, not many mighty are called. There's not many of the great men of the world who are called. Men commonly turn to pride. And this man did as well. We'll see it growing throughout the passage. But he had a problem in verse 1. What was his problem? What's his problem in verse 1? Tell me. He has leprosy. What is leprosy? Leprosy is a disease, especially in the ancient world, that would attack the nervous system. And by attacking the nervous system, it would render the nerves unable to feel pain anymore. It could lodge itself in the skin and grow. And as it grew in the skin, it would corrupt the skin. And the worst problem about a disease of the skin is that as it grows, it can spread quickly. 
it also destroys the dignity of the person who has it because it affects your beauty. Everyone can see this man, his skin is turning white and ashen. As the laws in the book of Leviticus we remind us, you can see it visibly. People can tell that one has leprosy. In fact, two chapters later, in 2 Kings chapter 7, there are four lepers who are not even allowed to come into the city. They had to live far away. They couldn't stay with the normal people. Naaman probably contracted this leprosy while out on one of his battle campaigns. While out fighting in the war, he comes in contact, maybe with a dead body. Maybe the war was set through a leper colony. But he contracts this disease. And now he is contagious. Haggai 2 verse 13 says, As an unclean man can pass off his uncleanness, remember that a clean man cannot pass off his cleanness. If you have a little baby and the baby gets dirty, can you put a dirty baby by a clean baby in hopes that the dirty one will become clean? Filth can be transmitted easily, but cleanliness not the same way. Naaman was a leper. He was highly contagious. He was hopeless. There was no cure at that time for leprosy, although there is treatment today. That means you are going to die from this disease as it eats away the skin and the flesh of the body. You're going to die. You've received a death sentence, Naaman. Naaman has no hope. He's lost. He's contagious. But look in verse 2. The Syrians had gone out by companies and had taken a slave girl from the land of Israel. Someone who waited on Naaman's wife. A little girl to serve Naaman's wife. Reminds us again that Naaman was rich. We'll see that again in verse 5. This little slave girl works for Naaman's wife. But what does she say in verse 3? Would to God, I wish to God that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria. For he would recover him of his leprosy. Look at this little girl. What does she say? You, you held me under slavery. I'm not going to help you. I'm going to hold it in. I'm not going to tell you what I could tell you. I could tell you this, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to sit in my embitteredness and laugh at your disease. I'm going to mock you because you have me in, sla- in slavery. She's not held down by her slavery. She's not embittered by it, but she's a picture of our Lord's words in Matthew 5, verse 44. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Not only that, but this little girl, though she has been taken from her country, she has not forgotten her God. I wonder if we have that faith. If you were taken away from all of the means of grace, your Bible is gone, your church is gone, your friends and relatives are gone, would you still follow Christ? This little girl did. But more than that, she actually speaks. It's one thing to think a good thought. It's another thing to take the emotional energy to talk to someone about it. This little girl 
has the courage and the strength to speak. She talks. How many of us fail right here at this point? I would almost like to give the entire sermon off of verse 3 on evangelism. The title would be, Preaching Like a Little Girl. How many of us don't have the grace that a little slave girl had when her parents aren't even around? She speaks, and she speaks the truth, and she directs him wisely, and he listens. Verse 4, it passes on from person to person until someone passes it on to the Lord, who passes it on to the king and says, hey, maybe we can get help because we've all heard about the the prophets in Israel who do miracles. Verse 5, the king of Syria says, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he goes with all of this money in verse 5. Verse 6, this is remarkable. Look at verse 6. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, now when this letter has come to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant to you, so that he may be healed from his leprosy. Who's talking to who in verse 6? The king of Syria is talking to who? The king of Israel. Wait just a minute. This king thinks that he has the power to control miracles. And the king doesn't even write to the prophet. This king is so proud, as politicians almost universally are, He thinks to himself, I know, I'm the king, right? I talk to you, hey king, tell your prophet to heal this man. Men of this world are so foolish that they think spiritual power can be purchased or commanded. But not so in the kingdom of God. The Lord does not delight in that kind of thing as much as he does in humility. He has shown you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? You have no power over him. He has the power over you. But this king is very foolish. And I hope we are seeing that as we go through the books of the kings and Samuel. Government is untrustworthy. That is part of seeing the world as a Christian sees it. We obey the government, but we are very cautious about our trust. We deal out our trust the way some deal out their money, very slowly and diversified. We give our trust slowly because there's only one ultimate place that our trust belongs. It's in God and in his word. And this is one more example of a foolish king. A king who says, heal him. Here's the money. Take care of it. What a proud man. But do you know what that king never noticed? He never noticed that he was proud. Pride is a kind of cancer that goes undetected until it's past cure. There are very few deathbed conversions. Do not count on deathbed conversions. Evangelize now before your mother is too old. Speak to your father now before they're too old. Many people say... Well, my grandmother prayed. I hope so. But it is very rare. Charles Spurgeon said, It is very rare to find a man who did not have the strength and courage to repent in life who will take up such a big task on the day of his death. 
This man reminds us that the cancer goes undetected. Look at verse 7, the final verse of this section. Verse 7 is the king of Israel responding. It came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends to me to recover a man from leprosy? Consider, I pray you, and see if this man is not seeking a quarrel with me. He wants to fight with me. Now, I see pride in this man as well. The man's name is Joram. He's been king for just a short time, maybe as short as three years. His brother, Ahaziah, was king before him for only a year and a half. And before him, it was the wicked king Ahab, which means just a few months before, just a few years earlier, the king Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22 said, hey, Jehoshaphat, let's go fight against the king of Syria. In 1 Kings chapter 22, Ahab says, let's fight the king of Syria. And they go out and attack the king of Syria. And they kill many of the Syrians And it's not quite a draw because Judah wins against the Syrians. If you were king of Zimbabwe and South Africa attacked you in 2016 and now in 2020, would you have reason to think that they would be angry at you? Yes. Here the king of Syria has a real cause to be angry at the king of Israel. And Joram, the king of Israel, is so blind. He can't see beyond his nose. He sees himself only, but not everything else that others see. And what does he say? Am I God? Joram, you don't care about God. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 2 or 3, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 3. Three verses two and three say that Joram didn't even care. He was not a godly believer. He was an ungodly man. But now he invokes the name of God. What a prideful man to take the name of God in vain. And remember that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Pride is growing. But God does not allow pride to go unchecked. So it's going to change the scene in verse 8. Look in verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had tore his clothes, he sent to the king and said, Why have you torn your clothes? Come now to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. God always takes the initiative. Men are great sinners, and it is God who says, I take the initiative. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15, verse 16. Elisha takes initiative, and if we would again be godly men and women, we need to teach our children to take the initiative. I was encouraged this week when I saw my second son taking initiative to do good things. Good job, Colin. Initiative is a mark of godliness. And here it is in verse 8. 
He looks and sees a problem and wants to solve it. But not only that, notice that Elisha says further, he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha has complete confidence that God will perform the miracle because this is the 10th miracle that Elisha has performed. When you have a history of godliness, you are in a better place to know the ways and works of God. Many people speak confidently, but their confidence is not based in Christian experience or in the Word of God. If you have fought with your sin for a long time, then you know the way temptation comes. You know the way God delivers. You know the way the Spirit of God will help you. You know the way He comforts you when you've fallen into sin. Elisha demonstrates that now. What the Puritans called experiential religion or experimental religion. They meant a kind of religion where you know because you've lived and prayed, you've fought with temptation and thrown it down. Today, experimental religion is pushed to the side for experimental living. People talk about God as if, oh, God has helped me through so many things. I was, in a, I was poor for a while, and God helped me when I was poor. As if there aren't many ungodly and wicked poor people. God's help and the experience of true godliness is seen when we fight with our sin and throw it down. God may have helped you when you were poor, when you lost your job, when you were sick, when you went through that hard time. I'm not doubting that God helped you. I am doubting when you put your focus on, I had a hard life, but I keep going. Well, what's the option? Killing yourself? True godliness is marked because we recognize I fought with my sin and I threw it down during that time of hardship. Not merely living through hardship, but fighting with your sin and conquering it. Here Elisha knows by practical experience what it is to be godly and he knows the way God works. God will answer my prayer and he will heal this man. Notice also that he wants him to know there is a prophet where in verse 8. Where is the location? Israel. This, this book is written after the Psalms. And all throughout the Psalms we see all the earth will know. All the peoples of the earth will know. God has always had a heart that reaches out to all the peoples of the earth. And this prophet realizes the truth is here in Israel. If he'll come here, he can find the truth. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him and said, Go wash in Jordan seven times, and your flesh will come again to you, and you will be clean. What is this message but a precise message? How precise is it? He says, wash. Don't look at it. Don't visit it. Don't draw a picture. Don't sprinkle. Dip. It's precise. I believe it was William Perkins, the Puritan preacher, who was once attacked by a person, not attacked, but, but, but uh, um, confronted by a man who said, Mr. Perkins, you are so precise because he was attempting to be a godly person in all areas of his life. And the person said, Mr. Perkins, you are so 
precise. And William Perkins' answer was, I serve a precise God. Elisha says to him, I want you to go wash that verb and no others. How else is he precise? Look in verse 10. What other statement of precision do you see? In Jordan, not another river. Don't go to a public bathhouse. Don't go to a swimming pool. Don't go to another river. It's got to be Jordan. There's more precision. How many times? Not one or two. Not four or five. You can't say, but I did it a lot. It's got to be seven. God demands obedience, not your best guess. God demands submission to his will, which is why we must read our Bibles. I urge you to read your Bible every day. And every Sunday night, we will come back here at 6 o'clock, and Lloyd is going to stand up and say, are we reading our Bibles? What did you learn? What are you doing? Why does he do that each week? Are we just trying to kill time? We know that if you don't actively read your Bible, you cannot obey what you do not know. How will you obey the statements about praying without ceasing if you don't even know that it's in the Bible? How will you obey the statements of the Sermon on the Mount if you've never read them? Notice secondly in verse 10, not only is it a precise instruction, it's an exclusive instruction. There's only one way to do it. Money is not going to do it. And Naaman's thinking, I've got all the money right here. Let me just pay you. Can I pay a guy to go get there in the river and get washed? No, there's one way, Naaman. It's this way only. God has made it very clear there are two ways and only two ways. The broad road that leads to destruction and the small, difficult road that leads to life. There are only two, but we live in an age that fancies itself having a third road. I've got one foot on the narrow road and one foot on the broad road. Jesus says you're deceiving yourself. His way is exclusive. There's only one way. Not only that, but it's a humbling way. You're going to have to go in front of people in public. You yourself are going to have to do it. You can't pay someone. You're going to have to wash, which means you're dirty. You're going to have to do it repeatedly so that everyone can see it. You're going to have to submit to a prophet and... Best of all, I skipped this to come back to it. In verse 10, Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. <laughs> this is the man who's the general of the army. You don't, you don't make him angry, he might attack you. And guess what? In chapter 6 of 2 Kings... What country attacks Israel? Syria. The very Naaman, he might be the same man. I hope not. 
Elisha, I can see people saying, some in this room might be tempted to say, if you were counseling Elisha, oh, just go down and say hi to him. Just go tell him. Elisha says, absolutely not, I'm not going. I could go. Well, I I know you're really busy, Elisha, but can't you just make a few minutes? No, I'm not busy. I'm not going. Some people, when they ask me for money, like at checkers, uh, the people will come up and say, hey, just five rand, five rand. No, I'm not giving you five rand. And sometimes they will say, I'm only asking five rand if you've got it. And I say very clearly, oh, I do have five rand. I'm not giving you five rand. It's not because I'm trying to lie and pretend like I don't have it. I'm not going to give you five rand because that's not the right way to handle this particular problem. In case you're listening and thinking I don't care about poor people, I love buying groceries for people and I've done it many, many times. But I don't give out money and I don't recommend you to give out money. And so I make it very clear to people, yes, I do have money and if I don't, I'll go get it just so I can tell you I have it. And I'm not going to give it to you because that's the wrong way to handle this particular problem. I can see Elisha in there saying, oh, I've got plenty of time. I, I, I was just doing this. I, don't, I, don't, I have time to come out. I'm not coming out because I'm sending a message. What's the message? You all know the message. And some people here might even say, well, Elisha, just go out. It's good for politics. You don't want to start a war, you know. That might happen. It's the general of the army. And it makes him angry. But Elisha says, no, I, I have one goal in mind. It's to throw down his pride. Well, aren't you making a big assumption, Elisha? Yes, I'm making an assumption that all people are sinners. Some people don't like it when we make assumptions or what's called stereotypes. They'll say this, oh, you're judging. Elisha judged. Elisha assumed he was a proud man who needed to be humbled by having a messenger go down and tell him, go wash. Would it, now here's the question though, would it have been kind for Elisha to go talk to him? Yes. Some responsibilities in the Christian life are more important than other responsibilities. As we were reminded in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is with his family, his wife and his four boys, and he urges them to come to the celestial city and they won't come. So what does Christian do? Is it good for him to tell his wife and children? Yes. Is it good for him to go to the celestial city? Yes. Christian makes the choice to leave his family and go. The point is simply that there is a level of responsibilities. Verse 10 closes the section where pride is threatened. Verses 11 and 12, pride won't take this lying down. It resists. It fights against it. Look at verse 11. And Naaman laughed. And Naaman skipped around like a child and thought, well, this is fun. He was filled with anger and went away and said, behold, I thought he would certainly come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and strike his hand over the place and recover me from my leprosy. 
Let's deal with these one at a time. Number one, what's his first response? He's angry. Pride always brings anger with it. Proverbs 13 verse 10. Only by pride comes tension. If you have anger in your home, there's pride somewhere. This man's anger is a fruit of the root of pride that goes deep into his soul. He's angry. He won't be submissive. In fact, it's written again just to communicate he's in a rage at the end of verse 12. He's angry. What's his second response? He complains. Verse 11, he's angry, went away and said, I thought he would certainly come out to me. When we complain, we give words to foolish expectations and a lack of faith. Now, complaining needs to be balanced against speaking negatively. Some people believe that all negative speech is a sin. So that if I see my third son hit my fourth son, and I say, hey, don't do that, you're wrong, as if that's a bad thing. No, they would say, you can do that with your, with your sons. What about when my sons are 30? What about with your sons? What about with you? Well, many people these days say, you're not speaking faith if you speak negatively. Well, that's just foolishness. The Bible speaks negatively all the time, constantly. In fact, the Bible commands us to speak negatively. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says, judge the prophets, test the prophets. That's a command in the church to say, well, that's a false prophecy. That's a true prophecy. We're commanded to speak negatively. Many, many times, Jesus says, judge righteous judgment. Numerous times we're commanded to speak negatively. But here's the difference between complaining and biblical negative speech. Biblically negative speech is speech that follows the Bible. But complaining is when I have a foolish or a sinful expectation. And building on that expectation, when it is not met... I give vent to my thoughts with words. Naaman falls to this trap. And don't we all? I wonder, is there a sin more common than complaining? Saying something that we don't like without a good reason. Now, if your wife asks you, do you like pork or chicken? And you say, oh, I don't really like pork. That's not, okay, that, that's fair enough. There's a good reason. But if your wife cooks the pork and she gives it to you and you say, I don't like it, that's complaining. Amen, ladies? When we don't have a good reason for speaking negatively about something that happened, we're complaining. And we do that so commonly. We are all gripped with that about the government, about our families, about our wives, about our children, about our church, about the pastor, 
about everything except what? Ourselves. Naaman falls to the trap of complaining because he has foolish expectations. Notice he has foolish expectations in verse 11. He says, behold, I thought he would do this. I was all prepared that he would want this. Guard yourself against sinful and foolish expectations. It's best that we enter each day expecting sinful people are going to do sinful things to me. But God is going to be kinder to me than I deserve. You see, if you just have the first part, if, you're, if you enter the life with this expectation, today a bunch of bad things are going to happen, then you're going to be Eeyore. Do you know Eeyore? He's the donkey in um, Winnie the Pooh. And he's always speaking negatively and complaining without a good reason. If your expectation is bad people are going to do bad things to me today, then you're just going to be Eeyore. But if you go further, you might be a Christian and you say, bad people are going to do bad things, but God will give me more than enough kindness to make up for it. And that's the truth, isn't it? You're going to go through your life and bad things are going to happen today. But even while all those bad things are happening, the father of lights who gives out every good thing, James 1 verse 17, is going to pour out more kindness on you than you deserve. His mercies are new Every morning, Lamentations chapter 3, he's always going to give you more goodness than you deserve. So wake up each day saying, bad people are going to do bad things. It's going to be a rough day. Except that God is going to give me more than I deserve. And you might be pretty close to the truth. Anything more than that will set you up to complain Anything more than that will set you up not only to complain or get angry, but it'll set you up to give up. Do you see the end of verse 12? He turned and went away. End of verse 12. Do you see that? He gets angry and gives up the whole thing. He's traveled hundreds of kilometers in a chariot. Dusty, hot, sweaty, tired. How many? Traveling six, eight hours a day as a sick man. And he says, fine, I'm just going to give it up. You don't like it? I'll take my ball and go home. My dirty, infected ball. That's not wearing a mask. Naaman says, I'm just going to give up. How foolish and irrational is that? But notice, brothers and sisters, notice that unbelief and pride is always irrational. Pride never has good logic. That's what we learned in our series on the book of, uh, on, on logic. When we studied 1 Corinthians 4, do you still remember this or do we need to do that series again? 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul the Apostle says, What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What brilliant logic. And once again, giving the lie, I once heard a pastor say, Your theology is biblical, but it's not logical. Or, I'm sorry, your theology is logical, but it's not biblical. Don't ever do that. Logic and the Bible go together. They never contradict. There's nothing in the Bible that contradicts logic. In fact, the Bible supports logic, which is why I've taught two times, I've taught a sermon series on biblical logic. You let me know if you'd like, and we'll start it next Sunday. 
And I mean that because we have to start my new series next Sunday night. And I've already got it prepared, so it would save me time. The Bible wants us to use our minds, not unplug our minds. The Bible is a rational book because it's a representation of God himself, the most perfect mind. But pride, what does that do? It makes you give up. You travel 200 kilometers when you're sick and there's no prophet anywhere else and the prophet says, go take a bath. No, not taking a bath. Pride will do that to you. It will make you a fool. It will make you worse than a fool because you've got the knowledge and you threw away. Children may be foolish because they don't have the knowledge. You will become worse than a child because having the knowledge, you choose to throw it away. Or having it right in front of you, you choose to pass it by. Pride makes us worse than devils. Because pride, though we had been made in a station more glorious than angels, we make ourselves worse than demons. How so? Number one, we were given more grace because we were given the image of God. Only humans have the image of God. Angels and demons do not have the image of God. Secondly, not only that, Christ died for humans. He didn't die for angels. He died for humans. And when you are lifted up with pride, you look at his death on the cross and say, that means nothing to me. Devils can't even sin in that particular way. What a foolish man to give up in his pride. And it proves again that pride is a monster that will gladly feed on your soul's blood. Why would you keep it a moment longer? I want to challenge you men right now. Whenever you get in attention with your wives... Don't wait for time to cool off. Cool off immediately. Because every moment you go on in pride is a moment the monster is destroying you from the inside. Cool off immediately and set a good example. It is hard. It is not easy. He went away in a rage. He needs some time to cool off. What a skilled man you would be if you could cool off immediately. And you can cool off immediately when the, when the motivation is put in front of you. How many of you have ever had a fight with someone and then when the phone rang, you answered it and you were happy? How many of you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but some people ha may have experienced this. You've been driving to church and attention comes up in the car with someone you love and you walk into church, hi, Hello, and suddenly the tension's gone. You swallowed it that fast when the motivation was high enough. The problem is we don't have the motivation very high when we're with someone we love, someone we say we love. Well, he makes excuses. He rationalizes. He wants to go to these other rivers. He wants to give up all from pride. But notice in verses 13 and 14, pride dies. God makes sure that his pride dies, but it doesn't die without help. Verse 13 does not say that Naaman, of his own will, thought about this a minute and said, you know what, what, I'm, what am I doing? Let me turn and go back. No, verse 13, his servants came to him and spoke to him. 
We need help from other people. Naaman's humility was an aided humility. A a helped humility. This is why the Bible says in Ephesians 5, husbands must wash their wives with the word. Wives need help. And of course, it goes without saying that men need help because wives are given as a help meet. They're helpers. The whole point of God creating women is men need them. And not foolishly, as some young boys speak who know nothing about themselves or life or children. I need a wife so she can cook and clean for me. You need a wife so she can show you how selfish you are. And so she can help you read your Bible and see the things you don't see. So you can get cleaned up before you stand in front of God. That's why you need a wife. It goes both ways. His servants came near and spoke to him. They talked to him in verse 13. Oh, but listen. And then they use number one. When they speak to him, notice this. If you want to recover a man from pride, especially angry pride, try this. Number one, verse 13. My father. They speak with what? Respect. You will never get, or very rarely get, outside of a miracle, you will not get someone who's angry to become humble without respect. Number two, what do they do? They use logic. They've ordered their thought. They present it in a clever way. If the prophet had asked you a great thing, would you have done it? So they do what's called a logical argument from greater to lesser. If you would do the greater, if you would pay a thousand rand, certainly you would pay ten rand. That's good logic. They order their argument. So if you want to help someone, number one, come to them in respect. Number two, come to them with a well-ordered argument. Number three, ask questions. That is a brilliant way to communicate. Jesus asks questions. Paul asks questions. Aristotle encourages us to ask questions. And Socrates, the founder of Greek logic, or the man known as the founder of Greek logic, Socrates is famous for coming to truth by asking questions. In verse 13, they ask him questions. How much rather than when he comes and just says, wash and be clean? Now I want you to notice one final comment about these people who come to ask him. They're just his servants. Why then do they have any persuasive power with him? Well, they respected him and they ordered their thoughts and they asked him questions. They didn't accuse. The human soul is uniquely persuadable by other souls. We are entirely interdependent on society. When I say entirely, I simply mean we are in all of our parts interdependent uh, on society. I don't mean in every way because, of course, ultimately we're dependent on God. But we are dependent on people around us, which is why God made the church. It's why God made the family. No man is an island, John Donne said. I think it was John Donne. Was it John Donne? No man is an island. Entire in himself. No, we need to depend on others. And other people are very persuadable and persuasive with us. Proverbs 13.20 says, Choose your friends wisely. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Choose your friends wisely. 
Because the people we are around will persuade us whether we like it or not. I have had people say already that my wife acts like me. And one person told me that I act like my wife. And I took it as a compliment. He was not meaning that I'm feminine. He was meaning that the grace and virtue that she had has been coming into my life. And I was glad for that. In verse 14, we see pride dies because of obedience. Verse 14, he went down and dipped. There is no true humility without obedience. Pride will never die without obedience. We must obey the Bible. That's what he does. And that's what he's commanded to do. And in the final point that I would just draw to your attention in verses 15 to 19, the final statement that happens in this story, Naaman is converted. Verse 15, he returns to the man of God. He and all his company, he comes and stands before him. And now Elisha comes out. Now Elisha says, I'll speak to you. He stands before him and says, behold, look at these words in verse 15. Now I know. That again, those three words again almost became an entire sermon. Now I know. If you have always thought of yourself as a Christian, you're not a Christian. You need to come to a point where Naaman says, now I know. Oh, I had thought I was fine before I washed, but now I know. True conversion is a change where you say, previously I was lost, I was a vile worm, but now I'm a saved vile worm. There's got to be some recognition of that. And in a place like South Africa or Southern Africa, where a great percentage of people call themselves Christians, 86% in Zimbabwe, 94%, is it Angola or Namibia? Angola? 94% of the people in Angola call themselves Christian. If you try to plant a church in Angola, they all think of themselves as Christian. How can you deal with that? They've got to come to a place where they say, now I know. Conversion is not something that you get in the hospital when you were born. It doesn't come at your sixth birthday. It doesn't come when you were baptized. As a man yesterday told me, I was born again. How do you know? I was baptized. So you think that water has some magical power that takes away your sin? You had no better answer. This that Naaman says is an important point of the experience of the human soul. And we know conversion has happened when you can say, Ah, I had thought that I was converted, but now I know. And when you evangelize, you need to bring people to that point. You need to craft your words and your discussion so they come to the point where they say, Oh, Now I see. I thought I had seen, but I hadn't seen. Now I see that I hadn't seen. Now I see, now that I see, when in the past I had not. There is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Verse 15, take a blessing of your servant. I want to pay you. Verse 16, Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. 
And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Look at this brilliant demonstration of true ministerial godliness. I don't love your money, Elisha says. You can tell a true prophet because he's humble. I'm not even going to come out to see you. He wants you to be humble. You've got to go wash. And he doesn't love your money. Sometimes I think that's all you need to do to test a true pastor. Well, yes, you need to make sure he preaches the Bible. But it seems to me that if a man is humble and wants you to be humble, and if a man doesn't love your money, he's also going to teach the Bible. In general, if you find a man with those marks, he's going to be a Bible-teaching man. If you say, it's hard for me to tell sometimes people when they preach, I can't tell all the doctrine. Just ask yourself, does he have a humble life? Does he urge you to be humble? Does he love money? If he can pass those tests, then probably he teaches the truth as well. Verse 17, Naaman says, Will there not then, I pray you, between us, just take some mule's burden of earth, for your servant will henceforth not offer burnt offerings to any other God but to the Lord. He says, can't I just have a little bit of dirt so I'll remember the land of Israel? Brothers and sisters, you live at a time far better than Naaman. You have the church of the living God that can be transplanted and moved. You don't need a donkey to carry a couple buckets of dirt. You have the church of God, the assembly of believers. But oh, how it pains me to see people, number one, who are believers, who do not value the church. What a terrible sin. John Owen said, I just read it yesterday morning. John Owen said, the greatest evil of all evils is when professing Christians do not honor the glory of Christ. And don't we come very near to that sin when we profess to be Christians, but don't honor the place he's given us? This man says, just give me a bucket. I'll take it with me everywhere I go so I can say, now I'm in Israel. Now I'm at the place with the true God because I'm only going to worship Jehovah now. He was converted. Verse 18, and when he's converted, notice this. He immediately knows that syncretism is wrong. In this thing, the Lord must pardon your servant that when, I, when my master goes into the house, the king, when the king goes to Ramon, this false god, to worship there, when he wants me to come with him and I bow down there in that house, when I bow down there, the Lord must pardon me. He immediately knew it's wrong to go into the house of a false god. I don't know what to do. He'll kill me. My, my, the king, what do I do? I'm gonna, I have to go back. I don't want to worship him. I don't love him. I love the true God. He knew immediately, if you're going to be a Christian, you cannot fear Buroi. Buroi. Buloi. Witchcraft. African traditional religion. You must make a clean break from all of that. From the Afrikaner who gets involved in the Hebrew roots movement with the idea that we are the new Israel and the Afrikaners have some special connection with God, throw it down. With some English or American who thinks, well, I'm so great because, throw that down. We don't want any connection with syncretism. You need to become a Christian African, a Christian American, a Christian South African, not an African Christian. This man recognizes that syncretism is wrong. And so Elisha says, go in peace. And I would close with this. 
Pride is so deadly, it would feed on your soul. It tried to kill Naaman. And it almost did, except that God gave him